before I lived, it was decreed that all newborn infants be named after the king. In addition, all children were to be fathered by the king as well. If you wished to have a baby, you were required to wait in a long queue of prospective mothers outside the royal castle. When your name was called, you were ushered into the king's bedchambers and given ten minutes to conceive. After your time was up, a trained court rooster would crow, and the king's page would remove you from the premises, sending you on your way. My father, the king, was known as King James, so my name was also James. My brothers were named James, and so were my sisters. Everyone in the kingdom under the age of 57 was named James. When I was 10 years old, the king became very ill. He pulled me to his bedside and said, Son, my end is drawing near. When I die, you shall become the new king. The next morning, he was dead. No one was sure why I was made king. Typically, the king's oldest heir inherits the throne, but since nearly everyone in the kingdom was technically his heir, no one could remember who was the oldest. The court bookkeepers couldn't figure it out either, as their record consisted of nothing but scrolls and scrolls with the name James, written in impeccable Latin script. So, for the sake of convenience, the king's wishes were followed. My first day as king was mostly eventful. The dimensions of my head were taken for the smelting of a new crown, and various measurements of my body were made for the royal robes. I was told that, barring an unsuccessful hunting expedition, they would be made of ermine. In the evening, however, I received a rude awakening. Sire, said James, my page, it is now time for the royal conception. I was led into my father's bedchambers and told to lie in the bed, furnished with sheets made of the finest silks from the Orient. The page then tiptoed out of the room and shut the door behind him. I glanced around the room and noticed a large, ornate mirror directly above my head. At my bedside was a table with various tropical oils and perfumed spices. A plump bunch of grapes rested on a silver platter, and I tried bouncing a few off the hanging mirror and into my mouth, but missed. As another grape glanced off my chin, the door cracked open, and a young maiden's face appeared. Frightened, I screamed and hid underneath the bed. From my cramped sanctuary, I heard the door close, followed by a muffled argument. The door opened, and I recognized the voice of the page, saying, Don't be shy. Remember, you only have ten minutes, or you'll have to wait until next year. The door shut once more, and I detected several soft, timid footsteps approaching the bed. It was difficult to breathe in my dusty, confined hiding place, and I began hyperventilating. Soon I was loudly wheezing and coughing, and the lack of oxygen to my brain made my vision start to blur. The sheets hanging over the bed were lifted, and the maiden's face peeked down at me. Are you alright? she asked. I crawled from beneath the bed on the side opposite her, and tried to hide behind the table inadvertently knocking over several vials of the tropical oils, which spilled all over me. I smelled like a botanical garden. 
The maiden knelt down beside me and wiped the hot oil from my face with her skirt. Don't worry, she said. I'm not going to hurt you. I rubbed my eyes, which stung from the oil, and asked her for some water. She brought me a water basin and extended her hand. Hi, I'm James, she said. Me too, I replied. We stayed motionless for a while, lying on the floor beside one another, and then she got up and said, Well, there's only a few minutes left. I guess we should get to it. The maiden removed her long gown and tossed it over the bed. She turned around and began untying the laces of her corset. She next slipped off her skirt and splayed herself along the edge of the bed, completely naked. I put my hands over my eyes, utterly terrified. With an exasperated sigh, the maiden got up off the bed and tugged at my hand, but I wouldn't budge. She grasped it at my belt buckle and tried removing my pants, but I let out a high-pitched shriek and bit down hard on her fingers. She screamed in pain and struggled to pry her hand from my mouth, dragging me across the bumpy stone floor. She finally succeeded and tumbled onto the bed, writhing in pain. Just then, a cock crowed and the page opened the door. He took one look at the naked girl clutching her injured hand and one look at me on the floor, huddled in a fetal position, and said, suppose I can give you a few more minutes. There was a long, awkward pause as if he wanted to say something else, and then the door pulled shut. The maiden dressed herself and knelt on the floor beside me, dabbing at my bloodied elbows and forehead with her gown. It's okay, she whispered. It hurt my first time, too. The timed rooster went off, and the page swung the door open. Out you go, he said, gruffly. We have fifty more to get through before sundown. I became violently dizzy, clutched the maiden's skirt, and threw up all over her. Thanks to the fragrant oils, my vomit smelled like a rose petals. After a disastrous first day of royal conception, my advisors voted to appoint a court impregnator whose sanctified sperm would be considered a vessel of the kings in much the same way that blessed wafers become the body of Christ. To select an appropriate candidate, some members of the royal council suggested a public display of virility with the title awarded to the young Casanova with the best combination of endurance and speediness. Church leaders expressed grave doubts over the morality of sexual auditions and proposed an archery contest. The winner shot slightly to the left. After nine months, our vaunted court impregnator made a tearful confession that despite his archery prowess, he was completely impotent. Still, women throughout the kingdom gave birth to healthy children, and the church decreed that our peasantry possessed the gift of spontaneous reproduction. 
the court impregnator kept his title for symbolic purposes, but neither he nor I was obligated to conceive. We were off the hook. The next few weeks of my reign went smoothly, marred only by the occasional siege or trebuchet accident. Eventually, though, rumblings of discontent filtered through the castle walls over the kingdom's mandatory naming process. Apparently, the edict requiring all newborn children to share the name of the king had created a logistical nightmare for the official bookkeepers and stenographers who were throwing horseshoes at knights and cow manure at ladies-in-waiting to protest. After another emergency meeting with my advisors, we settled on a compromise. All children in the kingdom would still be named after the king, but I would change my name daily to foster greater variety in nomenclature. I would alternate between men's and women's names, for instance Archibald on Monday and Prudence on Tuesday, to offer children a 50-50 chance of receiving a gender-appropriate moniker. The new system was an unqualified success, and our kingdom entered an unprecedented epoch peace and prosperity. Of course, nothing lasts forever, and a dramatic increase in the literacy of the peasants led them to question the social justice of feudalism, resulting in a full-scale revolution. After a brief but bloody struggle, the castle was overrun by insurgents, and I was condemned to death by beheading. My final request was to be buried on a Wednesday since I was scheduled to be called Lucius, easily one of my top five favorite names. Unfortunately, a savage outbreak of typhoid fever delayed the funeral, and I was buried on a Saturday, which explains why my gravestone reads, Here lies King Deborah, oppressor of the working class. Oh well, at least they did a nice job with the engraving. Deborah after the beheaded monarch, whose gravestone is often featured in architecture manuals, a textbook example of proper engraving technique. When the revolutionaries transformed our kingdom into a new, fledgling nation, the antiquated naming system was abolished, and I became a member of the Deborahs, a unique kind of social underclass tainted by our shared forename, a painful reminder the past 400 years of tyrannical feudalism. There were 37 Deborahs born that fateful day, and 
I became acquainted with every one of them, our paths forever intertwined by our eponymous stigmata. The popular sentiment of the time was that Deborahs were dull-witted and obstinate, so we were taught separately from the other children, lumped together in a small livery stable adjacent to the elementary school. Our math teacher was a Shetland pony who supposedly possessed the ability to perform simple arithmetic, stamping out the final answer with his hooves. In addition to learning adding and subtracting, we had an introductory course on geometry where we'd identify the shapes of the horse's excrement, almost exclusively ellipses and polyhedrons. But while we watched the other children joyously prance outside, learning the Latin names of caterpillars and native mosses, we shoveled oats into the horses' troughs and spread fresh hay on the stable floors, an activity referred to as physical education. Physical education was our core curriculum, lasting six hours a day. Back at home, not a single dinner went by without my father berating my mother for delivering me a week early. He was due for early April, he'd snarl, in between bites of roast pheasant. If you just would have waited another day, we wouldn't have this indelible mark of shame upon our household. My mother loved me as much as my brothers and sisters, but in my father's eyes, I was a pestilence, a sideshow freak that deserved to be banished beneath the floorboards. When our family entertained guests, no one was allowed to mention my name. My father would explain that I was a deaf-mute, and I would have to endure hours of banal conversations about the rise of the bourgeoisie and the decline of the harpsichord while pretending not to hear anything. All my friends were other Debras, since the parents of normal children thought I'd corrupt their sons and molest their daughters. One of the Debras in my class came down with hoof-and-mouth disease, and the rest of us were quarantined for a month in the stable and covered with leeches. This was dubbed a preliminary course in medicine, and those of us who survived received our leeching license. Tired of spending my school week cleaning stables and hauling bundles of hay, I dropped out and started my own private leeching practice. By law, I was required to conspicuously display my leeching practitioner certificate in my office, and when potential customers saw my first name was Deborah, they'd hurriedly gather their things and walk out the door, occasionally spitting on my face. One patient didn't realize my name was Deborah until the middle of her treatment, and it wasn't until she undressed to make love with the local magistrate that she noticed the swarm of leeches pulsating on her abdomen. Unable to make a living in my homeland, I convinced my wife, one of the 37 Debras, to join me on a merchant vessel bound for the newly formed United States of America. During our long and difficult journey, my wife gave birth to a son, who I named Dirk, the most masculine name I could think of. When we arrived on the shores of Massachusetts, I kissed the earth, reveling in my newfound freedom from tyranny and ignorant discrimination, reborn in this land of liberty and progress. Four days later, I was accused of being an anarchist and hung by a lynch mob from a lamppost, brightly festooned with red, white, and blue streamers in commemoration of American independence. I remember thinking, 
right before the noose snapped my neck that the fireworks were very impressive. named Deborah after my great-great-grandfather, who apparently hated the name. Of course, I'm a woman, so I suppose it suits me better. My father moved our family from the East Coast to Oklahoma when I was a little girl, in hopes of securing a better life. He was one of the Sooners, the land grabbers who crossed the line of demarcation early in hopes of claiming the best property. He was shot dead by a patrolling sheriff, and when my sister was born the next day, she was named Patience. Our family of three women had a difficult time making it in the Wild West. The only viable career paths open to us were housewife, schoolmarm, and saloon dancing prostitute. Law enforcement was considered too dangerous, bartending too unwholesome, and cattle ranching too strenuous. Blacksmithing was right out. I was a naturally gifted equestrian, but the Pony Express wouldn't hire me. I was a brilliant public speaker, but when I tried to run for city council, I wasn't even allowed on the ballot. I tried impersonating a man in a job interview with the Oklahoma City Times, but they saw through my charade. My tobacco spitting it just wasn't authentic enough. For many years, I worked as a maid and waitress at the Compton House, the preeminent hotel in Oklahoma City. The most prominent citizens in town would rent rooms for extramarital affairs and casually dine in the hotel restaurant. And as I changed their soaked, squalid sheets and picked their discarded chicken bones off the linoleum floor, I would quietly seethe at the injustice of my situation. Not only was I smarter than these people, I was more cultured, well-rounded, and capable than any of them. While the land speculators were drinking themselves silly on a Sunday afternoon, I was reading the latest financial reports from Wall Street. While the local dentist was riding an Asian prostitute with a saddle tethered to her back like a bucking bronco, I was performing oral surgery on my sister patients. When famed orator William Jennings Bryan spoke outside the hotel from a railroad car, I delivered eloquent, improvised sermons in the stockroom. At the apex of an emotional soliloquy on the Silver Purchase Act, my manager barged in, smelling like a livery staple. The indoor toilets are overflowing again, he said. Quit talking to yourself and grab a mop. My salvation came in the form of a small-time criminal named Jarris Gorgenbeck, a drifter from out of town who spent the night at the Compton House. I entered his room to replace the sheets and discovered him cleaning a Winchester carbine rifle, stacks of hundred-dollar bills lying neatly on the bedspread. 
Where do you get all that money? I asked. I hit a couple banks in Abilene, he said, a toothpick shifting between his lips. You know anything about driving a horseless carriage? Thanks to my limited knowledge of the newfangled petroleum-powered cars, I got my first job as a getaway driver. After Jarris robbed the Oklahoma City Bank, I whisked him away in a curved Dash Oldsmobile, an unwieldy monster with a single-cylinder engine, tiller steering, and chain drive. The police easily caught up to us on horseback, and we were thrown in jail. I was soon released, charged only with being an accomplice, but Jarris languished in prison for another 15 years, having committed a string of robberies throughout the Southwest. I was fired from the Compton House and found work in a saloon, mending the stockings of the can-can dancers and tuning the barrel house piano to a well-tempered scale. My aspirations dashed, I married the saloon's piano player, winning his heart with my tuning abilities. We had three children, but I never felt comfortable with my role as a doting housewife. The neighborhood women would stop by for tea, and their conversations were always mindless musings on the latest Sears Roebuck catalog, or the difficulties of wearing corsets. They once tried to enlist me in the temperance movement, and I spiked their tea with Jack Daniel's bourbon. One day I was half drifting off to sleep while the women discussed the immodesty of flappers when a familiar face appeared at the front porch. It was Jerris Gorgenbeck. Excuse me, ladies, he said. You know anything about driving a Chrysler B70? I immediately left my family and joined Jerris on a cross-country crime spree, robbing cafes, gas stations, and banks. The strides made in the last 15 years by the automotive industry vastly improved my abilities as a getaway driver, and soon we were richer than Roosevelt's. At about the same time, another man and woman team was terrorizing the American West, drawing significant coverage from the national press. They were known as Bonnie and Clyde, mixed-gender outlaws from Texas who shot anyone who got in their way. To the public, they were either bloodthirsty villains or misunderstood folk heroes. To us, they were unwanted competition. After robbing a bank, we'd return to the town the next day to buy a copy of the morning paper for our scrapbook. Without fail, Bonnie and Clyde would hog the front page headlines, relegating us to the last page along with the quilting bee announcements. Bonnie and Clyde had everything going for them. They were young, glamorous, and serial murderers. Jerris and I were middle-aged, ugly, and harmless. In addition, our names were horribly awkward-sounding. Deborah and Jerris just didn't have that zing of Bonnie and Clyde. Our celebrity rivals provided the newspapers with a steady supply of photographs and poems, further cultivating their mythical status. One poem, The Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde, made the front page of newspapers across the country, depicting their life of crime as an inevitable road to suicide. The poem was trite and tepid, marred by forced rhymes and inarticulate philosophizing. I wrote a poem about our exploits in the style of Walt Whitman and sent it to the New York Times, and several weeks later, I got a response. 
We appreciate your submission to the New York Times, it said, but we regret that, at this time, we are not able to publish your work. We look forward to hearing more from you in the future. I was crushed. The Times rejected my poem, a virtuosic piece burning with the imagery of the arid desert, and yet published this amateurish, treacly garbage from Bonnie Parker. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. The melodrama made me want to vomit. Soon, Bonnie and Clyde were gunned down in a police ambush, yielding yet another front-page article for the populist desperados. Not long after, the papers published a letter from Clyde Barrow to Henry Ford, praising the Ford V8 for its speed and reliability. We would have sent a similar letter to Chrysler, but our Chrysler B70 broke down during a police chase, and our bodies were riddled with bullets. By the coroner's best estimate, we received about 50 bullet wounds between us. In comparison, Bonnie and Clyde got over 160. They beat us at everything. Deborah after my mother, who left my father when I was six months old. Though I don't remember her, my older brothers clipped out every newspaper article covering her crime spree and framed them on our living room wall. My mother was easy to find in the newspaper since they always put her on the last page with the quilting bee announcements. My brothers said that before mom skipped town to rob banks, dad was a prototypical father playing catch in the front yard and bouncing us on his knee while he relaxed in a leisure chair. Though his barrel house piano career had taken a hit from prohibition, he managed to earn a decent living playing ragtime and other bright up-tempo numbers for weddings and private parties. But for as long as I can remember, my dad has been nothing but a glass-eyed, sport-suit-wearing zombie. My earliest memories of my father are his piano performances for wealthy socialites at the Compton House. Though his fingers gaily plunked out cheerful, popular fare like The Entertainer and The Gladiolus Rag, his expression was set in a vice grip of morbid, unblinking death anxiety, as if he was playing a tortured minor-key Chopin sonata. A cigarette hung from the corner of his mouth, spitting a relentless cloud of smoke until it burned down to nothing, a black, ashen corpse protruding from his lips. The waitresses were trained to wipe the ash from his face, fish another cigarette from his pocket, and stick it in his mouth, lighting the end with the wax candle illuminating his sheet music. When the candle was briefly removed from the piano top, 
the music became too hard to see, and my father's fingers would continue mindlessly dancing on the keys, a cacophony of wrong notes and dissonant harmonies. His cigarette lit, the candle was returned to its rightful place, and the music would immediately regain its intended melodic consonants. When the party was over, a busboy would gently remove my father's hands from the piano and slide the polished rosewood cover over the keys. We'd pile in the family car, and my oldest brother would drive us home, my father's fingers still occupied with the silent rendition of the maple leaf rack on some imaginary baby grand. In 1933, Prohibition ended, and my father returned to playing for bars and burlesque shows. The can-can dancers would drape their legs over the piano and suggestively lean in front of his agonized, unchanging face, caressing his forehead with their garters and loosening his tie. Inevitably, a dancer would obscure his sheet music with her bodice, and the resultant flurry of jarring wrong notes would send the startled chorus line reeling from the stage like falling dominoes. When I was 12, my mother was shot to death by police in Abilene, Texas, and her body was shipped home to Oklahoma City for the funeral. I was looking forward to seeing my mother in person, but the visitation was closed casket due to the extensive damage to her body. In accordance with my mother's wishes, the 27 bullets that passed through her skin were displayed in a glass case next to the coffin, along with childhood photographs and her birth certificate. At the church service, the priest was clearly uncomfortable with eulogizing our infamous bank-robbing mother. He tried reading some pre-selected Bible passages, but lost his place and ended up reciting random verses from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that appeared to have no relevance to my mother's life or death. Take heed in the plague of leprosy, he read, that thou observe diligently, and do according to all that the priests the Levites shall teach you. Sweat pouring from his brow, he hastily added, Moses' words ring as true in our time as they did in his. Since my brothers were too distraught to address the congregation, our mother was paid tribute by several of the neighborhood women, all of whom she apparently hated. As they praised her devotion to the temperance movement, they frequently stuttered and trailed off in mid-sentence, distracted by my father noisily wrapping his fingernails against the pew, lost in a phantom performance of the weeping willow rag. After the service, the funeral procession filed out to the cemetery, the can-can dancers dressed in black leather corsets, translucent lace garters covering their faces. Four bank tellers my mother once held up lowered her casket into the ground and started filling the grave with shovelfuls of dirt. When they were nearly finished, my father, who had not spoken in over eleven years, emitted a blood-curdling scream and leapt on my mother's grave clawing at the dirt with his nimble pianist's fingers. As the stupefied crowd looked on in amazement, my father accompanied his fever digging with a stirring rendition of You Are My Sunshine in a rich baritone. The bank tellers tried to pull him away, but he violently resisted, thrashing like a prize mackerel. You make me happy when skies are gray, he sang, grasping at handfuls of dirt. Eventually, the four men succeeded in subduing my father, 
and he was carried to our house and tied to his leisure chair. The funeral guests arrived for a luncheon, and as they shared anecdotes over cheese fondue and cucumber sandwiches, my father quietly continued his bittersweet elegy. Please don't take my sunshine away, he sang, staring absently out the window. Every Mother's Day, my oldest brother drives our family to the cemetery, and we plant fresh gardenias on my mother's plot, my father tapping ragtime rhythms on the graves of Confederate soldiers. To save money, we did the engraving ourselves, and as a result, my mother's name is noticeably off-center, and the epitaph cuts off in mid-sentence because we ran out of space. My brothers always remind me that by not hiring a stonecutter, we were able to afford crab cakes and Texas brisket for the funeral luncheon, but I'm starting to think it wasn't worth it. I recently finished a school report on my family genealogy entitled 200 Years of Deborah, which primarily focuses on the violent and untimely deaths of the ancestors sharing my name. I'm not superstitious, but my research has made me consider my own mortality, leaving me to wonder if I too am fated to die an early death. They say history is doomed to repeat itself, but if we become diligent students of the past, perhaps we can counteract history's cyclical nature and launch a fresh narrative, unburdened by the mistakes of our forefathers. Only time will tell if I can evade my violent destiny, but there is one thing of which I'm certain. I'm leaving my epitaph to the professionals.